It's good to be with you now, uh, whether you are here in person or watching online. For the benefit of those of you who might be new to Harvest Decatur, my name is George Bennett and I serve here as an elder and a small group leader. Today is the fifth installment in our sermon series, Journey Through the Letter of James. The letter of James has an interesting structure because chapter one is almost an outline or a table of contents for the rest of the book. In the chapters that follow, James expands on each of the topics he introduced in the first chapter, kind of bouncing around from idea to idea while maintaining a common thread throughout. Much like the letter, our series began with Pastor Tony showing us that James wrote the letter to motivate sincere believers to live out their faith with visible actions. And in the weeks that have followed, we have seen examples of the visible results of putting faith into practice, such as wisdom, peace, and dedication. In certain respects, my sermon is a continuation of the messages Mike Vernon and Ryan Jackson delivered the last two weeks. Okay, uh, show of hands, how many of you recognize this photograph? Anybody? Okay, this unarmed man is the tank man of Tiananmen Square. And he uh, stopped a column of tanks by standing in their path. Uh, this photo was taken on June 4th, 1989. In the spring of that year, students began gathering in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China to protest the communist government and call for reforms that would promote greater political and economic freedom. Estimates are that at the height of the protests, over one million protesters were gathered in the square. The image of the tank man became an iconic symbol of not only the protests in China, but also the courageous pursuit of liberty. The irony is that hours before the photograph was taken, the Chinese government had already brutally cracked down on the protest by sending 300,000 troops toward the square, killing demonstrators and bystanders in the process. The identity of the tank man has never been confirmed, nor has his fate ever been determined. The incident captured in the picture was not like the shot heard around the world that led to a great triumph of human rights and freedom. Rather, it was the lone exception in a decidedly one-sided clash between a strong power holder willing to use force to get its way and an anonymous, anonymous opponent with few weapons at its disposal. Such a one-sided conflict is not unlike the situation we will read about in James. So if you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of James. Specifically, we will be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you are new to the Bible and new to this series, the book of James is toward the back, between the book of Hebrews and the book of 1 Peter. James is a relatively short book, just five chapters. As I said, we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. You may also read the passage on the screen. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. If you have an ESV Bible, you will see a section heading that says warning to the rich. The NIV section heading says warning to the rich oppressors. The New King James heads the section rich oppressors will be judged. After seeing such section headings, you might be wondering why I chose this text for my sermon. I'm actually a bit surprised myself. This is not a passage I would normally gravitate to. As elders, we started thinking about our sermon series back in January. In case you don't remember, January was a month at the beginning of this year. Don Miller had just joined the elder board and we began discussing options for our series. We quickly settled on the idea of a series based on themes from the book of James and we agreed to spend a few weeks in the book to see which themes emerged for each of us. I read the book every day throughout the month of February. In the second half of the month, this passage simply started striking me more and more. I was pretty sure the Holy Spirit was nudging me to pick this theme for my sermon, but I didn't know exactly why. I knew that he probably had something for me to learn during the course of my preparation to preach, and I trust that he has something for each of you as well. I say that knowing that most of you probably would not characterize yourselves as rich in the financial sense of the word. One of my objectives this morning is to show you that the section heading which was not inspired by the Holy Spirit in the same way the text itself was breathed out by God, is a bit misleading. But before we get too far along, let's pray and ask for wisdom to study this passage well. Father God, we thank you that we can gather together this morning and study your word. We thank you for preserving your word for us. And we thank you for speaking through the pen of James. We ask you to shine your light so that our eyes might have light as we study these verses. We ask for the wisdom that only you can provide so that we might understand what this passage is saying to us today. And more importantly, that we might know what you want us to do in response to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Pastor Tony's sermon introducing this series, he mentioned that the book of James is sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. That nickname is appropriate because James is packed with uh, practical wisdom. But in another sense, the nickname is unfortunate because it can imply that James is a collection of loosely related statements without a lot of structure. At first glance, James does seem to jump from topic to topic fairly quickly. But upon further review, we can see that there is a kind of flow to James's thoughts. Now, this wouldn't be a sermon of mine without a digression into science. 
In chemistry, we talk about closed systems and open systems. A closed system is one to which energy cannot enter and from which energy cannot escape. And you're already familiar with the idea. You know not to leave the refrigerator door open for long stretches of time. And you know that you sometimes grill with the lid closed or sometimes with the lid open. We like to study closed systems in chemistry because we can quantify different properties more easily. For example, if we run a chemical reaction in a closed system and measure the temperature change, we can determine whether the products are more stable than the reactants or less stable, and by how much. If the temperature goes up, we can calculate how much energy was converted into heat. Since the system is closed, we know that the amount of energy that appeared as heat was equal to the amount of energy lost by the reactants when they turned into products. In other words, a gain in one area must be matched by a loss in another area. If the temperature goes down, we can calculate how much heat was removed from the system. The same amount of energy must have been absorbed when the reactants became products. Again, a loss in one area must be matched by a gain in another area. The letter of James is really a collection of contrasts that illustrate the difference between a closed system and an open system. We've seen several contrasts already in this sermon series. Paul Roberts talked about the wisdom from below versus the wisdom from above. Mike Vernon talked about war versus peace. Ryan Jackson talked about not being dedicated to the word versus being dedicated to the word. These specific contrasts are all symptoms or effects of a more fundamental contrast. I think the key to understanding the book of James is in chapter 4. So keep your finger at chapter 5 and look at verse 4-4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. For James, the world, or what we might call worldliness, is a closed system. It's a system of meaning that does not take into account God's existence or his claims. In fact, it doesn't simply ignore God's claims. It's hostile to God's claims. James calls it enmity. Enmity is a state of being actively opposed to something. The world system actively opposes God. God's excluded from the world system. And the world system is a closed system. And remember, in a closed system, a gain in one area must be offset by a loss in another. Life in a closed system is a zero-sum competition. In the ancient world, to say two people were friends was to say that they saw things the same way. Friendship with the world, then, refers to profound agreement with this system of meaning that leaves God out of the picture. So instead of understanding that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, the person who is a friend of the world derives meaning and significance from comparison to others. The friend of the world is liable to say, I can be more only if I have more. The word for that state of mind is envy. Envy is a kind of sorrow experienced simply because another person has something. Envy is what the have-nots in a closed system are susceptible to feeling. 
On the other hand, the haves in a closed system are liable to become arrogant. They have a misplaced confidence in their possessions. Therefore, envy and arrogance are two sides of the same coin. They both result from agreement with a closed system of meaning that excludes God and feeds on comparison to others. I don't know about you, but for me, most of the negativity in my life comes from comparison to others. I feel pretty good about how my garden is doing until I look at the garden down the street. I feel pretty good about my salary until I start finding out how much other people make. I think I'm a pretty decent runner until I see how many people are ahead of me in a race. I'm satisfied with the meal I just ate until I go on social media and see pictures of food that other people have posted. The list goes on and on. The act of comparing arouses the envy that is already in me. Same thing with arrogance. If I compare myself to someone else and feel good about how I stack up, feelings of superiority start to well up. If I could eliminate or avoid all comparisons, perhaps I would grumble and complain less, but the envy and arrogance are still inside of me. And it's important for us to recognize that these counterparts stem from deriving meaning and significance apart from God. So getting back to the text, in James's mind, friendship with the world and friendship with God are the only two alternatives, and they are mutually exclusive. A person cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. A person is either a friend of the world or a friend of God. Now, I'm going to assume that all of you listening to me desire to be friends of God. Amen? So I'm going to give you four affirmative inferences from the passage about what is true about friends of God. Before I get there, though, we need to talk a little bit about whom James is addressing here in chapter 5. Verse 1 begins, come now, you rich. Come now basically means listen up. So listen up, you rich. Who are the rich? Well, it's not immediately obvious. The list of accusations that follows suggests that James is addressing wealthy landowners who are not even Christians, much less members of the churches James is writing to. Additional evidence for that conclusion appears earlier in the book in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Moreover, James doesn't seem to expect any repentance from them. So the people James identifies as the rich appear to be outsiders who interact with the church members but are not church members themselves. But if that's the case, why address them at all? They wouldn't be likely to hear these words or care what James had to say. Notice also that James says, you rich. He addressed them as if he expected these rich folks to be in his audience. In Paul Roberts' sermon three weeks ago, he talked about the enormous economic pressure believers faced at the time James wrote his letter. Perhaps a few members of these churches were wealthier individuals who were contributing to the economic oppression of their fellow saints, and James was trying to get their attention. The pronoun you should also get our attention. 
As we will see, the accusations have less to do with having wealth and more to do with hoarding it, less to do with being rich and more to do with being worldly. Worldliness is something we all have to battle, so the Holy Spirit undoubtedly had us in mind when he inspired James to write these words. I'll come back later to the relevance of this passage to us, but let's turn our attention to what James says. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Write this down as the first point. Friends of God look to eternity. Friends of God look to eternity. Some people say John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet, but James really sounds like one here. If James were having a conversation with these rich people, after he told them to weep and howl, they probably would have responded, what miseries? We don't have any miseries. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that a sufficiently large bank account will shield us from suffering, and for a while it might. James anticipates their response with verse 2 when he starts listing different forms of wealth and how they don't last forever. He says, your riches have rotted. He could be talking about riches in general or specifically about crops. In the ancient world, grain in particular was a valuable commodity, and it was especially valuable during a time of famine. It's no surprise James led with this example if he was writing the letter at the time of the famine in Syria and Palestine that occurred around AD 46 and 47. So when James addresses the rich, he's addressing people who had plenty to eat. Next, he mentions clothing, which was also sometimes used as a form of payment or reward in the ancient world. James was addressing people who had plenty to wear. In verse 3, he cites gold and silver. James is addressing people who had money set aside in savings. Then he tells them that they have laid up treasure in the last days. Don't these verses remind you of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Recall Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's another instance when James demonstrates that he had been listening when Jesus preached. For James, friends of the world accumulate treasures on earth, whereas friends of God accumulate treasures in heaven. Friends of God know that life on earth is short, but eternity is long. James made a similar point earlier in the book in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
The Romans had an expression, memento mori. The verb form meant remember death or remember you must die. The noun form refers to an object that serves as a reminder of the inevitability of death. Before photography was invented, people's portraits were captured in paintings. Typically, only the wealthy could afford to hire an artist to paint their portrait. The artists often added a memento mori to the painting to remind the subject of the painting that wealth would not stave off death. You can see an example on the screen. This is a self-portrait by the artist Thomas Smith from 1680. The skull at the lower left is the memento mori. Perhaps we do ourselves a disservice by not dwelling on death more. The prospect of impending death has extraordinary power to concentrate the mind. We sometimes criticize the Puritans as being killjoys with dour expressions on their faces and a grim determination to not have any fun. However, in a Puritan settlement in the 1600s or 1700s, having a funeral a week was not uncommon and many of the funerals were for children. The Puritans were immersed in a reality that death was imminent. But you know what? The Puritans took sin very seriously and they sought to bear fruit for God as confirmation of their salvation. Death for them was a reminder to live a good and virtuous life. We would do well to remember death more. Death is not just inevitable, it also has a leveling effect. The 1980s are sometimes referred to as the decade of greed. Popular TV shows in those years included Dallas and Dynasty, which were primetime drama, dramas centered on wealthy families, and documentaries such as Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. T-shirts and bumper stickers read, He who dies with the most toys wins, which was originally a quotation attributed to a millionaire. It didn't take long, though, for someone to rebut the quotation with, he who dies with the most toys still dies. It was a spin on the old Italian proverb that says, the king and the pawn meet together in the same box. That's the point James is making. Wealth and possessions only last for so long. Don't invest in things that won't last into eternity. Look to eternity and set your priorities accordingly. So friends of God look to eternity. Point number two, friends of God fulfill their obligations. Friends of God fulfill their obligations. Read along in verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These landowners James is addressing exploited their workers and didn't pay them what they were owed. The Jewish background believers James was writing to would have recognized this exploitation as a violation of the command in Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. The landowners failed to fulfill their financial obligations. More than that, though, they also failed to fulfill their covenantal obligations. Salvation might be by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but once we become God's children, he expects certain things from us. 
according to Jesus and Paul and John and James, these expectations are captured in the great commandment to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That includes loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, turning the other cheek, and responding to evil with good. In addition to the great commandment is the great commission, where Jesus told us to go and baptize all nations and to teach them to keep all of his commandments. We might forget that there is also a great requirement that is stated in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? When God says he wants us to do justice, he is primarily talking about justice for others, for other people who have been treated unjustly or are at risk of being treated unjustly. He's not talking about pursuing justice for ourselves. He's promised us that he will right the wrongs we have experienced. He wants us to look out for others. And by the way, don't confuse your sense of fairness with God's sense of justice. The sense of fairness we all have could be a feature of being created in the image of God, but it's been corrupted by our sinful nature. I know my sense of fairness is highly self-centered. I'm quickly offended when I perceive that I've been treated unfairly. However, I get myself into trouble when I identify as unfair the circumstances that God in his sovereignty has deemed best for me. I get myself into trouble when I think that God has given me harder circumstances to deal with than other people. My sense of fairness is unreliable. God's sense of justice is timeless. God's justice is about helping those who cannot help themselves. It's about not exploiting those who are exploitable. If we consider the Ten Commandments, we see that we have an obligation to not bear false witness against our neighbors. Regarding this commandment, the Westminster Larger Catechism says, the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, in the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth, and only the truth, in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. We don't know the full extent of how these rich people James is addressing were failing to fulfill their covenantal obligations, but we can surmise that they were acting in accordance with worldliness. In contrast, friends of God fulfill their obligations. Write this down as point number three in your notes. 
Friends of God serve others. Friends of God serve others. Let's continue reading from verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, wait a minute. They lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Maybe they weren't quite so rich as we thought they were. Because if they were truly rich, they would have been able to pay their workers their wages and live in luxury at the same time. However, they chose their own interests over the interests of their workers. They were like people who run up credit card debt to buy things when they can't pay their own bills. Their worldliness caused them to be self-centered. Remember, the world system is closed and in a closed system, a gain in one area must be matched by a loss in another area. These people chose their own gain and they didn't care who would lose as a result of their choice. God doesn't forbid us from enjoying pleasures, but he does forbid us from indulging ourselves at the expense of others. I don't think I need to belabor this point. If you've attended Harvest Decatur for a while, you probably don't need convincing that friends of God ought to serve others. You're probably thinking, well, that's a no-brainer. Good job, George, picking the low-hanging fruit. Some of you are very service-minded or even gifted in the area of service. Others of you, however, might not quite yet know how to serve effectively. Serving is often inconvenient, sometimes difficult, and occasionally painful. When an opportunity to serve presents itself, it's easy to think someone else will take care of it. If that's your instinctive reaction, I would challenge you to ask yourself whether you might be the one God wants to take care of it. If you want to serve more but aren't sure where to start, I would suggest you find someone who is serving and ask them if they need help. I can all but guarantee they'll appreciate the offer. So friends of God look to eternity. Friends of God fulfill their obligations. Friends of God serve others. The fourth and final point is friends of God respond with patience. Friends of God respond with patience. Read verse 7 with me. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. In the ESV Bible, there is a section heading between verses 6 and 7, which suggests that verse 7 is unrelated to the previous verses. However, notice the word therefore. If you like to take notes in your Bible, you should circle every therefore you come across. Therefore is a reference to what came before. So when James tells the Christian brothers and sisters to be patient, He's calling for it as a response to their treatment at the hands of worldly rich people. The word translated as patient is a compound term composed of the words for lawn and temper. So more literally, James is saying, be lawn-tempered. Don't have a short fuse. Don't react prematurely. Notice that patience is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. 
I think James is trying to emphasize that methods are just as important as goals and means are just as important as ends. The way Christians behave is just as important as what Christians believe. As I was preparing this message, the question that came to my mind was, why did James pick patience? You know, he could have written, be loving, therefore, or be kind, therefore, be faithful, therefore, or be self-controlled, therefore. Why patience? I think one reason is that patience is the character trait most closely linked to the passage of time. And patience is harder for us when we don't know how long we will have to be patient. And part of the problem is that we measure time against our own lives. If we could see time from God's perspective, we would realize just how brief our lives and the trials we go through really are. Patience is also hard for us when we are waiting for justice for ourselves. James commands us to be patient until the coming of the Lord. We are not to take vengeance for ourselves. We can be confident there will be a day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and sets things right. We don't know when he will come back, but we know that he will come. Until then, we ought to endure patiently. The other question that came to mind was, what does responding with patience look like? Then in verse 11, James offers the example of Job, who was able to say in his suffering, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We also have some more modern examples to follow. Think of Martin Luther King Jr., the recently deceased Congressman John Lewis, and other Christians who took part in the nonviolent resistance of civil rights marches in the South in the early 1960s. Think of underground churches in Eastern Europe under communism. Think of churches and pastors in China or the Middle East today. Think of persecuted brothers and sisters who are held in prison as we speak. Patient endurance is not always easy, but it is always godly. I said earlier I would come back to the relevance of this passage for us. My perspective on what constitutes wealth and poverty changed dramatically in 1992. I had just graduated from college and I was waiting to start graduate school. Communism had recently collapsed in Eastern Europe. For several years after the Soviet Union ruptured, the apologist Josh McDowell led a short-term trip each summer called Mission to Russia. In 1992, I went on the mission to Russia. The way it worked was there were three teams of 200 people per team, and each team was divided into five groups of 40. Every team of 200 spent about 12 days in Russia, beginning in Moscow and ending in St. Petersburg. The arrivals and departures were staggered in such a way that the entire mission to Russia lasted almost three weeks. So team one flew to Moscow and spent about four days there. Then the five groups of 40 each flew to a different middle city. And the middle cities were Tallinn, Estonia, Riga, Latvia, Vilnius, Lithuania, Minsk, Belarus, and Odessa, Ukraine. On the same day the groups left for their middle cities, Team two flew into Moscow. After four more days, team one flew to St. Petersburg. 
the five groups of Team 2 flew to the Middle Cities, and Team 3 flew into Moscow. After four more days, Team 1 flew home, the groups of Team 2 flew to St. Petersburg, and the groups of Team 3 flew to their Middle Cities. And finally, when four, day, four more days had passed, Team 2 flew home, and the groups of Team 3 flew to St. Petersburg, where they completed their mission before heading home. I was part of Team 2, and my middle city was Odessa. And most of our mission work involved handing out Russian translations of More Than a Carpenter and the New Testament. On our flight home, I was seated beside a woman who had gone to a different middle city than I had. We hadn't met prior to that day, but we quickly found out that we had at least one mutual friend in the States. When our conversation turned to the mission trip we had just completed, she asked me, what are your impressions of the Russian people? I looked at her, kind of shook my head and said, I'm sorry, I don't do impressions. My training is in chemistry. Once she clarified her question, I related to her one of my experiences that remains one of my clearest memories to this day. When I was in Odessa, we were handing out literature near a marketplace in the afternoon. I happened to meet an English-speaking man who struck up a conversation with me. I was sharing the gospel with him, and I asked him if he wanted to be certain that he would go to heaven when he dies. I'll never forget his answer. He replied, how can I worry about heaven when I don't even know if I'll be able to eat tonight? In 1992, the monthly income of the average Russian was about $20. I had not thought of myself as rich before that day, but that incident made me aware of a completely different level of personal finance. I realized that I was wealthier than most people in the world, and I was wealthier than most people who had ever lived. And remember, I was a recent college graduate at the time. If I may be so bold, I would suggest that if you are a regular of Harvest Decatur, you are probably richer than most of the people alive today around the world. And you are probably richer than most of the people who have ever been alive in the history of the world. When I say that, I do not mean to minimize or underestimate the financial obstacles you might be currently facing. But most of us have plenty to eat. Most of us have plenty to wear. Most of us have a refrigerator, air conditioning, at least one working car, and an indoor bathroom. We are counted among the rich. And we are confronted with the choice between friendship with the world and friendship with God. Choose to be a friend of God. Look to eternity. Fulfill your obligations, serve others, and respond with patience. Pray with me. Lord Heavenly Father, in your love you gave us the freedom to choose whether to be friends of yours or friends of the world. Forgive us for the times we've tried to be both. We know that when we try to be both, we're really only friends of the world. We desire to be friends of yours. We want to know you as closely as Abraham did. We want to know you as closely as Moses did.
want to do the things that friends of yours do. Give us the perspective to see that our lives are short, but eternity is long. Lord, help us to desire heavenly treasures more than earthly treasures and to pursue them with earnestness and zeal. May our highest ambition always be to please you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.